Good evening. Latest news from the front. As negotiators from Ukraine and Russia meet for the third time, a corridor for refugees fails to take hold, and Russia accuses the United States of helping Ukraine develop a chemical and biological weapons program. And is it too soon to dump the mask mandates? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, March 7th, 2022. Fighting continues throughout Ukraine as the Russian spell, uh, what they call the special military operation, grinds towards its second week. Fighting intensified outside the capital of Kyiv, and a New York Times photographer caught a bomb blast just meters away in the contested city of Irpin, a few kilometers outside the capital. Nevertheless, the devastating carnage didn't put the damper on a wedding in Kyiv yesterday. Two reservists, together for 20 years, decided to tie the knot in the middle of the war zone. You know what, it's, uh, I want to give the present for everyone, but uh, the present for every Ukrainian that finish the war. It's uh, every Ukrainian have just one goal, to stop the war, to stop the keep, uh, killed civilian people, uh, women. Uh, it's huge hope for everyone, not just in Ukraine. Meanwhile, Odessa, potentially the next target of Russia's offensive in the south, is the country's main port and is vital for its economy. But the city of one million also holds a place in the Russian imagination. It was once the Soviet Union's greatest port. Charles Strafford has entered Kharkiv in northeastern Ukraine. He's a reporter with Al Jazeera, where he witnessed scenes of utter devastation in the center of the city following shelling by Russian forces. He said... I'm absolutely shocked by what we have seen. This is what the power of Russian bombing can do to civilian areas. Stratford said from the scene where an enormous Russian shell exploded several days ago. And the refugees keep streaming to the West. More than 1.7 million people have so far fled the war in Ukraine. That's according to the United Nations Refugee Agency, as thousands more stream across the borders. The UNHCR said a total of one. 1,735,068 civilians, mostly women and children, have crossed the border into Central Europe as of Sunday. The mayor of Lviv says his city, situated in western Ukraine, has reached the limits of its capacity to help people displaced by the assault and appealed to international organizations for help. But Ukraine's negotiator has said talks with Russia aimed at opening humanitarian corridors have yielded some progress on evacuation logistics, but none that significantly improves the border situation. Russia's top negotiator, Vladimir Bdinsky, said he expected that humanitarian corridors in Ukraine would finally start functioning today. I try to continue our talks and ensure that humanitarian corridors are operational, because from our side, and from our, the armed forces of Russia and the Donbass, a ceasefire regime has already been enacted in uh, the time and space necessary, and the people have uh, the possibility of escape. But that is sadly not a reality, because the nationalists 
who have uh, held these cities use civilians as living shields, both directly and indirectly. And it is undoubtedly a war crime which will be investigated in due course. Thank you. So now we're waiting for the Ukrainian delegation. But after the talks, Vidinsky said nothing was finalized. We came with a, a bulk of uh, written documents with the specific contracts, agreements and uh, treaties and proposals. And we hope that those points and those items that uh, we had already had some arrangements about, we hope that we'll be able to sign specific agreements. Uh, but the Ukrainian side took those documents home with them. They weren't able to sign anything on the spot, and they said uh, we would go back to this issue at our next meeting. And that is the lead Russian negotiator, Vladimir Medinsky. Meanwhile, a spokesperson for Russia's Ministry of Defense accused the United States of helping Ukraine develop biological and chemical weapons based on a cache of documents it says its forces seized during their operations. During the special military operation, we discovered evidence of the Kiev regime's urgent destruction of traces of a military biological program implemented in Ukraine and funded by the U.S. Department of Defense. We have received documentation from employees of Ukrainian biological laboratories concerning the urgent destruction on February 24th of highly dangerous pathogens of plague, anthrax, tularemia, cholera and other deadly diseases on February 24th. And George Galway, a British politician and supporter of Russia, adds, if true, the uh, United States is in violation of international law and might be guilty of aiding war crimes. And if true, this story is of quite devastating proportions. Not only is it brazenly illegal under international law, particularly the law governing the development of biological weapons, it is exactly the conduct that the United States falsely accused the Iraqi regime of having developed uh, immediately prior to their invasion and occupation. Uh, as it turned out, there were no Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. If uh, evidence did survive, if scientists and technicians will testify, then it's bang to rights, I'm afraid, for the United States. And should, if there was a free media in the world should call into very serious question just how much the U.S. has been using the people of Ukraine, using them as a biological weapons dump, using them as a, as a cat's paw against uh, the Russian bear, and who knows what else might yet be discovered. British politician George Galloway. In related news, European Union nations have agreed to start examining membership bids submitted by Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova, three countries, former Soviet republics, sharing borders with Russia. All three rushed to file the paperwork after the Kremlin launched its attack on Ukraine. United States Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was in the capital of Latvia, one of three states bordering the Baltic Sea, also former Soviet republics. The other two are Lithuania and Estonia. Blinken assured the Baltic countries that all which are NATO members of NATO protection and American support. He says the countries are a wall against an autocratic Russia. President Biden spoke to the American people just a, uh, a few days ago in his State of the Union address. 
And he made clear, uh, again, something he's affirmed repeatedly. We will defend every inch of NATO territory against aggression coming from anywhere at any time. Our commitment to Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all, is ironclad. The president has called it sacrosanct. And no one, no one should have any doubt about that. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Meanwhile, the leaders of Germany, the United Kingdom and the Netherlands have cautioned against abruptly banning Russian energy imports, saying there was no immediate alternative supplies. The pushback came after the United States yesterday said it was in active discussions with European nations about shutting down Russian oil imports, imports as part of sanctions against Moscow. Even as White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says no decision on banning oil from Russia has been made. Well, no decision has been made at this point uh, by the president about uh, an, uh, a ban, an import, a ban on importing oil from Russia, and those discussions are ongoing internally and also with our counterparts and partners in Europe and around the world. I would note that what the president is most focused on is ensuring we are continuing to take steps to deliver punishing economic consequences on Putin while taking all action necessary to limit the impact to prices at the gas pump. It is true that there has obviously been an impact of the invasion on the level of import to the United States and to other parts of the world. And that was Jen Psaki. About a third of Europe's energy is imported from Russia. The United States gets about 450,000 barrels a day from Russia as well. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In national news... The Defense Department will permanently shut down the Navy's massive fuel tank facility in Hawaii that leaked petroleum into Pearl Harbor's tap water and will remove all the fuel. The decision, which Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin made today, is based on a new Pentagon assessment, but also is in line with an order from Hawaii's Department of Health to drain fuel from the tanks at the Red Hills bulk fuel storage facility. The tanks built into the side of a mountain during World War II to protect them from enemy attack had leaked into drinking water wells and contaminated water at Pearl Harbor homes and offices. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby laid out the timeline for closing and replacing the tanks. The families obviously is foremost on everybody's mind and I don't want to speak for the Navy. They're working very, very hard to get these families back safely to their homes and to take care of them where they are. So what's going to happen here? There was already an assessment team that was in place to determine what it would take to get Red Hill operational again, because as you know, we suspended operations back in December. It hasn't been in use since December. That assessment team will now shift their focus to help us figure out what it takes to defuel it. In other words, to get operational capacity back up again for the purpose of defueling, not for continuing operations for fueling. We'll do the forensics on that, figure out what we need to do. Once we have prepared the site for defueling, and we know we can do that safely, we estimate that it'll probably take somewhere within 12 months or so to fully defuel and close it. Then once it's closed, we'll begin to work on uh, what the land use for it looks like going forward. And obviously a key part of that is going to be making sure that whatever we do in terms of closing down, that it's done in an environmentally safe way. Nearly 6,000 people, mostly those living in military housing at or near Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam, were sickened, seeking treatment for nausea, headaches, rashes, and other ailments. And 4,000 military families were forced out of their homes and are in hotels.
That to me is an interesting story considering the coverage that's been given on major media about the um, so-called uh, invisible attacks on American diplomats, which maybe affected a few dozen people with illnesses and uh, yet has gotten a tremendously more coverage in this case. Closer to home, New York State Governor Kathy Hochul was in Rochester today. It's the same day New York City has ended its rules mandating face masks and social distancing, but in place, uh, put in place as the COVID pandemic hit the city two years ago. Hochul said New Yorkers should still be cautious about potential new surges. We don't know what the future will bring because back in November, I was thinking, well, the numbers are going down. We're looking really good. And then November 26 was the first day that Omicron was identified as a variant. December 2nd, our first case in the state of New York. By the middle of December, we were on fire. It spread so quickly. That's why we were so, uh, so intent upon pushing vaccines and boosters out and testing kits. We had 92 million test kits. I think I have more than the federal government because I was so intent that we had to protect our people to amass the supplies we need. And I want to thank everyone in this region who had a hand and many countless individuals did in setting up our vaccination sites, working with the county and the city and the clergy and everywhere at the schools, making sure our children are vaccinated. We still need more children vaccinated. We can do better on that front because we don't know what the future brings. And as Governor Kathy Hochul, the Centers for Disease Control has released new guidelines that enable 70 percent of American adults to forego wearing masks indoors and social distancing. The New York Times and Washington Post reported that the CDC's guidelines allow counties to independently calculate risk of the virus to their residents by considering hospitalization and case data rather than the number of cases alone. Unvaccinated people at any risk classification are still encouraged to wear masks. Masking is now only recommended in schools in counties at high risk. The news comes less than three weeks after the agency's chief, Rochelle Walensky, warned against lifting mask mandates too soon. But now the CDC has pivoted to say that it is shifting focus to preventing the most severe outcomes and minimizing health care strain instead of focusing on preventing cases. The CDC was sharply criticized last year when it lifted mass restrictions just before the Delta variant surged across the United States. Nevertheless, Progressive doctors are also concerned with the changes. Andrew Goldstein, a primary care physician and assistant professor of medicine at NYU, tells WBAI the changes that are coming are their changes are coming, even as most Americans actually support mass mandates. I understand the frustration. I think it's misplaced and we're blaming public health protections instead of uncontrolled spread. But I think the mayor and the CDC have made some wrong decisions here. Why is that? The CDC has a recommendation to honestly report, and they just shifted the goalposts. So now, basically, uncontrolled spread looks like we're doing okay. And the mayor knows that, but really just wants to set a narrative of we're winning when actually things are still kind of precarious. What do you mean by uncontrolled spread? We know from countries that have done a much better job of keeping case numbers below 10 in 100,000, that that's really a level that's much more controllable and you don't have these surges. And what is it now for us about? It varies throughout the country. And the CDC basically has said that less than 200 per 100,000 is doing okay at this point or is in the medium zone. A few weeks ago, they were saying anything between 10 and 100 was either medium level of spread or high level of spread. Well, from the point of view of a health worker or a doctor in a hospital, what does that mean? 
we see the side effects of lack of public health protections when it's too late. And everyone who gets long COVID, it's a case that was preventable. Everyone who's in the ICU, that's a case that was preventable. But the moment to prevent it is before these surges happen or early in them happening, not once we're in the middle of it when it's too late. So we really want to have people and, and also public policy have it be so that these surges really don't happen. What's the worst case scenario? Well, the worst case scenario is that we have another surge where nationwide there's 100,000 people or more who pass away and probably tens of thousands or hundred thousands of cases of long COVID that were preventable. And we know that the CDC has changed these goalposts so that actually they're okay at tolerating a thousand deaths per day in the U.S. I know a lot of people who are small business owners, they've had it up to here. They don't say a hundred thousand deaths is worth it. They don't put it that way, but they just want to keep getting back to business. And I think we should be really, really sympathetic to that. And the, the bad guy here isn't small business owners who are put in a tough spot. The bad guy here are policymakers who have really set the stage where blame and responsibility have been uh, shifted to individual small businesses because they've made it so that they're not saying that these things are necessary. They haven't set a narrative about what's uh, really at stake here. They've been deferring responsibility to state and local leaders, and those state and local leaders have been deferring responsibility to small businesses, and that just puts too much on them. Instead, they should be really setting the tone from the top. What's the best case scenario? The most realistic scenario is that we, similar to last year around this time, think that we're going to be living with the end of the pandemic, with the pandemic in the rearview mirror, and then we realize that that's not the case, and then we redo some more things. Ideally, we would not have to learn another lesson before we institute more things, but we really do need to have shifts from low-quality masks to high-quality masks. We do need to have mask mandates in places where spread is most likely. We do really need to change the narrative. I think that's the most important thing that you know, our leaders, whether it's in the city or in the federal government, they need to say that hundreds of thousands of lives are still at stake. We need to have stronger public health protections. The protections are not to blame. It's actually the uncontrolled spread that's the issue. Funny that 100 years ago, 1918, everybody wore a mask in those days or else. People are afraid of losing their freedoms in that way. And I think that's the most important conversation we can have is that we can actually have these public health protections and we don't need to criminalize, let alone treat people violently when they don't go along with them. They can be enforced in other ways, especially at the institutional level. If Walmart doesn't enforce the mask mandate, they can face financial penalties as opposed to police violence for people not wearing a mask. We all do need to be in this together, protecting each other. And even though we don't know the person three infections away that we might hurt through this, like we do all have a, a bit of a responsibility to keep each other safe. And that was a uh, interesting interview with a uh, primary care doctor from NYU, Andrew Goldstein, who we interviewed on WBAI earlier today. In related news, a California doctor known as a leading purveyor of coronavirus misinformation pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor charge last week for joining the mob that stormed the United States Capitol last year. Dr. Simone Gold, founder of the anti-vaccine group America's Frontline Doctors, entered the plea to a charge of entering and remaining in a restricted building or grounds. The, the conviction carries a maximum sentence of six months in jail. The doctor also acknowledged then entering the building and giving a speech in Statuary Hall about her opposition to coronavirus vaccine mandates and lockdowns imposed by the government. She also has told the Washington Post that she regretted going inside the building.
And tomorrow is International Women's Day, a worldwide event only recently becoming popular in the United States. It marks not just a day to give mom a bunch of flowers or take a girlfriend out to dinner like Mother's Day or Valentine's Day. It's a day to celebrate political advances like the right to vote for women, universal in the U.S. for only 100 years, or more recently, the right to choose an abortion under assault in many states. In Texas, for example, where private citizens can sue doctors who provide abortions, and Mississippi, where a law greatly restricting the right is before the United States Supreme Court. The executive director of Women's E-News is Lori Sokol. She's working on a rally in Union Square in Manhattan tomorrow at 3 p.m., held along with others throughout the country. She says the attacks on abortion are really an attack on women and the rights many men have as well. We would not be having this discussion if men could get pregnant. We would not be having this discussion at all, right? This is about controlling women's wombs and enslaving women so that they are unable to be free in our society. And even worse, it is uh, women of color that even are more affected by this. Too often, of course, in patriarchal societies like the United States, uh, when it's a, an issue that only involves women, it doesn't seem to attract much attention because women are still considered second-class citizens in patriarchal societies but the, like the U.S. But we need to understand that Roe is not just about abortion. What Roe did was it solidified and expanded everybody's constitutional right to privacy. So should Roe be overturned, not only will that end women's right to reproductive choice and to have control over their own bodies, it will interfere with and it will jeopardize people's right to contraception and marriage and family relations and child rearing and intimacy and marriage equality, to name just a few. On Sunday, just this past Sunday, we were at St. Patrick's Cathedral, in front of the cathedral, again, speaking about the importance for anyone who's willing to hear about the importance of why it is crucial to ensure that Roe v. Wade stands. And now, as, as you began, March 8th uh, is a very important day for women around the world, International Women's Day. We're planning rallies throughout this country in major cities throughout this country, including New York City, where we have a number of speakers planned, like V. E. Vensler uh, being one of them, to rally for abortion rights. Uh, and we're trying to get as many people out in the street as possible, because as we know, and as uh, Margaret Mead w once said, the only way that women, that anything has changed in our country is by a group of people starting to get out in the streets and protest and then bringing other people in to do so as well. As we know, just last week in Colombia, one of the most Catholic states in the world, right, has finally decriminalized abortion up to six months. That had never happened before. Lori Sokol is the executive director of Women's E-News. on the news for Monday, March 7th, 2022. The news produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Rishi Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.